Heavenly Father, we've gathered in this place like many of your children have in churches like this throughout the world, not because it's just your day and not just because we want to be in church on your day, but because we want to hear you speak to us. We want to experience you through your spirit. And if you would be gracious, Father, we want you to transform us into the image of Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would take this narrative, this historical narrative from Acts 24, and that you would cause each of us to reflect upon the witness that we are to your Son. We all witness to him or to another, to your kingdom or the kingdom of this world. Many of us claim Christ, Father, and yet we still live in the world. And I ask that you would use this time in this passage to bring a right conviction or a right encouragement depending upon our faith in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would show each of us this morning the degree to which we actually testify on a daily basis to the faithfulness and the goodness and joy of Christ, that you would cause us to reflect deeply upon our own hearts, to examine ourselves, Father, that you would do that by your Spirit, that we would not leave here not reflecting upon how we see others, how others see us, and the testimony that goes forth from our mouths and our lives. I pray, Father, you'd be pleased by your Spirit to do a mighty work here in this place. We want to be faithful witnesses. We want to testify to the truth of Christ and the goodness of the gospel. We want to see all those in our lives who do not know you and have yet to put their faith in Jesus come to a saving grace. We ask that we'd use us to that end, Father, for your glory I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful you are here. If your Bible's not open to Acts 24, please do so. Um, I want you to, as always, I want you to see the words that are being preached um, when we gather on a Sunday morning like this, and we, if you've noticed, we have a tendency to sing God's Word, and we read God's Word, and we pray God's Word, and I'm going to preach from God's Word. Um, the intent is for you to hear God speak to you. It's by God speaking to you through the Spirit that you can actually experience real transformation and real change. And that is my prayer for you this morning. I pray it is your prayer for yourself as well. The title of the sermon from Acts 24 is Your Witness. That is your witness. Um, you say, well, what witness is that? That's the question of the hour, right? We're all a witness either to Christ and his kingdom or to Satan and the kingdom of this world. So everybody's a witness. The question is, what type of a witness are you? And what is your witness out in the world? So if you remember after Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus, if you remember, he was taken to Damascus and Ananias, a faithful Jew, brought him into his house. God enabled him to see, and then he received this commission. The Apostle Paul did Ananias said to him this, this is from Acts 22, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So the Apostle Paul was commissioned shortly after his conversion to be a witness. You say, well, what is a witness? You know what a witness is. A witness is someone who testifies to something, something they've seen or heard or experienced. And Paul was to be a witness to what he had heard and seen with his eyes and his ears, and that was Christ himself, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so Paul was supposed to go out and do what? He said, I've seen this Messiah. I've seen the Son of God. I know that he died. I know that he rose. I know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul's going to say, I know this. You can know him and be saved by grace through faith, too. He's going to be a gospel truth teller, offering salvation to anyone who was willing to listen. 
Paul was to be a witness to these things, as are we. My beloved, the commission that was given to Paul in Acts 22 is your commission, it's my commission, it's every single Christian's commission to be a witness, a truth teller of Christ. Now over the past few months, if you've been with us, we've, we've watched Paul, we've followed him through three missionary journeys, culminating in Jerusalem, and even though he um, was proclaiming the gospel there, he experienced severe persecution, so Lysias, the tribune in Jerusalem, sends him off to to uh, Caesarea to talk to the governor Felix. And he does that because there was a, um, a plot to take Paul's life. Um, so he's off to Caesarea, stand before Felix to face trial. He's going to go on trial for charges that were false, being brought by the Jews. And this is the very beginning of Paul's journey to Rome. Remember, Christ appeared to him and said, I'm going to send you to Rome. And this is the beginning of that journey. He, sta- he starts this journey in Caesarea. And over the next couple chapters in Acts, he's going to talk to three major rulers at the time. Felix, who we'll see today, who was the governor over Judea and Samaria at the time. Festus, who will replace Felix two years from this particular episode. And then, of course, the last Jew, the last king of the Jews from the line of Herod, King Agrippa II. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And in each of these three encounters, I want us to see the distinct difference between those who belong to the kingdom of Christ and those who belong to the kingdom of this world. We're going to see citizens from each, and each are going to bear testimony, and each are going to bear witness to the kingdoms they serve and the kings or rulers they serve. Paul is going to serve as a witness to the kingdom of God, and all the rest that we're going to see are going to serve as witnesses to the kingdom of this world. And the contrast is extreme, and it should be extreme. Because the, dif- the difference between those who belong to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is their relationship to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And so we would expect very different speech and very different behavior from those submitting to very different kings. So let's join Paul this morning as he's brought before Governor Felix in Caesarea being put on trial. And as we enter the courtroom, and we're going to do that, it's a trial, we're going to go in the courtroom, we're going to sit in the back and we're going to listen to these dialogues taking place. Um, I want you, as you go in, to examine your own hearts. And I want you to ask yourself before you leave this place so that you might know for certain what kingdom do you belong to and which king do you serve? What kingdom do you belong to and which king do you serve? And at the end of our time together, I pray you know it's Christ and his kingdom. I pray that's the right response. If not, then I will call you to repent and put your faith in him. So I'd like to do that this morning by looking at two things. Number one, the kingdom of flattery and lies. And the kingdom, number two, of honor and truth. You know, the first point, we have lived in it for so long. You have experienced it for so long. Maybe I could just skip right to the second point. You said, oh, I know this kingdom of flattery and lies. I've lived it. I've experienced it. I've seen it brought upon me. But I will, I will develop this because it's in the passage. And, of course, we want to preach the passage. Yes? Okay, the theme of your sermon is this. Your words and actions bear witness to your king. Your words and your actions bear witness to the king that you really serve. Now you may say, oh, I claim Christ. Christ is my king. Maybe so. But do your words and do your actions, does your life align itself with submission to the king of kings? Or do you say that with your mouth when in reality you serve a very different king than Christ? That's going to be our theme. Point number one. I pray you're with me. You can't. You can't 
you can't disengage this early. If you do, that's not my fault, right? 30 minutes in, if you disengage, that's on me. 10 minutes in, then that's on you. So let's, uh, let's get a lot of that, as I've said to you before, get that oxyhemoglobin going up in your beautiful brain. Get it going. Think hard. Um, you know, preaching is not easy. Listening's not easy. So this takes work. So let's work well now for the next 40 minutes, all right? Point number one, the kingdom of flattery and lies. The Bible clearly teaches that there are two kingdoms. We know this. There's the the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. It clearly teaches that there are two rulers or two kings. We have Christ, who is the king of kings, certainly the king of the kingdom of God. And then we have the ruler of this world, Satan, the devil, and he is is under Jesus' reign, but yet he rules here. And each kingdom has respective citizens, citizens of the kingdom of heaven or citizens of the kingdom of this world. If you've been born again by Christ, then you've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and you've been brought into the kingdom of light and Jesus Christ is your king, amen? If you have not been born again, if you have not put your faith in Christ and you truly, truly know him, then you remain dead in your sins and your kingdom is this world and whether you like it or not, the Bible says your father is the devil. Your father is the devil. And so we're gonna enter this courtroom and And as we do, and as Felix, the governor at the time, as he adjudicates this trial, the children of the devil, they get to speak first. And what they have to say, you probably will not be surprised by. Look at verse 1, Acts 24. Then after five days, the high priest Ananias came down, came down from Jerusalem with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So if you remember, Lysias, the tribune in Jerusalem, sends Paul off to Caesarea, to stand trial before Felix, and he said, I'm, in the letter, he said, I'm going to send up the accusers, Ananias, and some of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees will go. And, and then they send Tertullus, who was likely, it's a Roman name, he was probably a Roman lawyer, who was probably hired by Ananias and the Sadducees because he knew Roman law, and they're going to be standing before a Roman judge, so who better to have adjudicate the case um, than a Roman lawyer? And so Tertullus starts to make his case. Look at verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, accuse Paul, saying this, since through, you, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, verse 3, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Now you hear this, and if you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not an accusation against Paul, those are words of flattery, and we would say words of extreme flattery, well, you would be exegeting this verse correctly. This uh, rhetorical technique was called, essentially, in the the Latin, it meant to win the goodwill of the judge, to win someone over. The vernacular today would be sucking up, right? It's brown nosing. He's trying to sweet talk Felix into agreeing with him, even though there's going to be no evidence for his case. And he makes three statements about Felix, all of which are lies. So before he makes one false accusation against Paul, he's already lying in what he's saying about Felix. First thing he says, beginning in verse, latter part of verse 2, he calls Felix a peacemaker. He said, since through you we enjoy much peace. Now, the Romans prided themselves on establishing peace, right? The Pax Romana. And all officials were responsible for keeping the peace. Felix in particular, keeping the peace in Judea and Samaria. And so he's, he praises him for keeping the peace. The problem is that's completely opposite of what Felix did. Up until the resurrection, the resurrection, up until the insurrection in 70 AD, um, Felix actually proved to be one of the worst governors 
either before him or after him. In fact, there were more violent uprisings during his time than his predecessors or his successors. So he did not keep the peace, the exact opposite. And then Tertullius says, second thing, that he was a great reformer. Look at the latter part of verse 2 again. By your foresight, most excellent Felix. That, that just drips, doesn't it? I mean, that's just, that's hard. Reforms are being made for this nation. Again, simply not true. Uh, Felix made life miserable for the Jews, and that's one of the reasons there were so many uprisings during his reign. And Tertullius throws in one more, his popularity. Verse 3, he says, In every way and everywhere, we the Jews, he's not a Jew, but he's speaking on their behalf, we accept this with all gratitude. He paints Felix as the hero of the Jews, as a savior of sorts, which, of course, was completely untrue. History paints a very different picture of Felix. Uh, Felix was the brother of Pallas. They were both sons. They were, both, they were brothers, and they were slaves in the house of Antonia. And Antonia just happened to be the mother of Emperor Claudius. That's a good connection to have. You know, if you're going to have a connection, then, you know, make sure that you're working in the house of the mother of the emperor, right? And so she sets them free, and they become Roman citizens, and they, they actually become powerful. Pallas' brother serves in Claudius' court, and through that connection, Pallas was able to secure for Felix the prestigious position of governor of Judea and Samaria, and he took reign in 52 A.D. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this of Felix, He said, with all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. He exercised the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. So far from being a man of peace and far from bringing great reforms to the Jewish people, he was brutal and unjust. In other words, Tertullius was lying. He was lying. Every single point was a lie. In fact, it was disgusting and probably predictable, this false adulation in order to get Felix to side with him. But the lies don't stop there. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, which is a great statement, that's Felix's job. He's to adjudicate these cases. And they just started. But he's going he's gonna to rub it in. He's going to make sure that there's, there's just reeking there with, uh, with false adulation. He said, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So without any concern for truth or justice, they're in a court of law. He's a lawyer speaking to a judge. He continues to lie and lie and lie. The first thing he does, he calls Paul a plague. The word, probably a better translation would be a pest, a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, disturbing the peace. And, and Tertullius lays it on thick. He's not only is he disturbing the peace in Jerusalem, which he was not, he said he's a troublemaker throughout the whole world. In other words, he's saying to Felix, you better get hold of this because this guy who's now in your courtroom is not just making a mess in Jerusalem, throughout the entire empire. And if Claudius gets word of this, it's not going to be good for you. So he makes a false accusation about Paul's antics. The second thing, he calls him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A sect of the Nazarenes. Now, that's not entirely untrue, and Paul's going to clarify that for us in a minute. But Tertullius says it in order to implicate all Christians in this false charge of Paul being a, uh, a dissentious member of um, that area, a dissentious uh, citizen in Rome. So he's trying to implicate the church too. Then the last thing he says is that Paul profaned the temple. Remember, they, they said that Paul was speaking against the temple, and some had argued that he even brought Trophimus into the temple 
into the inner courts, all of which were completely untrue. Um, and then I love how Tertullius closes his argument, his closing argument. Confidently, he says, verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were true. So Ananias and the Sadducees, they all jump in and they say, yes, yes, that's true. And, and I, I really, I stalled on this thinking, how could he make such a claim? He knows the claims are false. So he's either trying to be so confident he's going to get Felix to believe him, either, either that or he's pathological and he truly believes that they're going to see these lies as truth and they're going to convict the Apostle Paul. It's a most impressive display of flattery and lies intended to win favor, not to make a case. Um, I would argue, I think you would probably agree that their citizenship is revealed. Tertullius, Ananias, the Sadducees upon, for whom he was speaking, we get a clear picture of the kingdom that they belonged to and the king they served. And it was not Christ and it was not the kingdom of God. In John chapter 8, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews who refused to believe that he was the Son of God, listen to this. He said this. He said, you are, these are hard words, you are, you are of your father the devil, and, you, and your will is to do your father's desires. He does not hold to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks, listen closely, his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Tertullus, Ananias, the Sadducees, all those bringing false charges, they knew they were false before Phoenix, before Felix. They were merely speaking their native language, their native language of lying, deception, and flattery. Now, my beloved, I don't have to tell you that in our cultural moment, the native language of lying is rampant. It's everywhere. In fact, I think at least I'm at that place now where I'm more shocked when I hear somebody speaking the truth than when I hear them lying. Now, that's not a good place for us to be as a culture. When people, men and women, in positions of great power are no longer held accountable for the lies they make and the culture either looks by or affirms their lies, when the President of the United States makes claims like this, that he was a full professor at the University of Pennsylvania, that he was appointed to the Naval Academy in high school, and that there was no COVID vaccine when he entered office, all things that could be easily fact-checked, blatant lies, and we just pass right on by. We know the native language of the culture we speak. And when states in our union are taking measures, even today, to inculcate in the hearts and minds of first and second graders this idea of gender identity being chosen, first and second graders, five, six, seven-year-olds, talking to them about hormone treatment, sex changes. We know the native language of our cultural moment. The question for you as you hear about those in the courtroom of Felix, those who are speaking on behalf of the kingdom of this world and on behalf of Satan, is what language does your speech, does it point to the kingdom of God or does it point to the kingdom of Satan? Is your language that as a citizen of this world or a citizen of the king of kings. Your relationships in manipulation, do you try to manipulate with your words? Or are you speaking the truth in love? I think it's a really piercing question. Whenever we talk about our speech, 
it becomes a very challenging thing for us because James is right, right? The tongue is a wildfire and sets the whole course of life on fire. And he was talking to Christians, not just non-Christians. Do you use flattery even in the smallest sense to curry favor? Do you tell small lies, make insincere statements like, oh, I, I love your dress when really you don't like that, that person's dress or you, you ask someone to tell you about their work when you have no interest in hearing about their work. Right? These, are, these are small things in, in the context of the world, but they're big things in the economy of God. Proverbs 26, 28, a flattering mouth works what? Ruin. Proverbs 29, 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Or maybe, you know, I don't engage in flattery, but I, I do twist the truth at times. I want to make things appear good in my eyes. I want people to see me in a particular light. I tell small lies sometimes, not too big. And maybe you're prone, maybe you're someone who's prone to exaggeration or embellishment. Or maybe you lie by truncating the truth. You tell a, a half-truth. But a half-truth, as you know, is a full lie. Right? There was a, a study done last year that found that the average American lies three times in a 10-minute conversation. Do you believe that? Three times in a 10-minute conversation. My beloved, if you had one 10-minute conversation per day, that'd be 90 lies per month and 1,100 lies per year just in that 10-minute conversation. That's, that's not good. Some of the most common lies, according to one study, listen, I'm fine, nothing's wrong. I was stuck in traffic. You look great. I only had one beer. My phone died. I had no way to contact you. I never got the message. I'll call you right back. It didn't cost that much. <laughs> it was on sale. Amazing number of things about product here. Oh, this old thing, I've had it for ages. I'm on my way. Thanks, it's just what I've always wanted. <laughs> You've lost weight. You haven't changed a bit. I didn't touch it. <laughs> I have no idea where it is. <laughs> I'll try to make it. I have a headache. The last one, I would never lie to you. I would never lie to you. My beloved, the language you speak on a regular basis will reveal, for better or worse, the kingdom and the citizenship and the king to whom you belong. In Luke chapter 6, when Jesus was speaking to the crowds, he said this, listen. He said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, what? His mouth speaks. Your words matter. Your words testify to the condition of your heart, which testify to the citizenship and the kingdom and the king you serve. In other words, your mouth and your words are a window into your soul. If you didn't know that before this morning, I pray you know that now. We're able to see in. You can't hide it by your words. And then Jesus, this is amazing. So in Luke, uh, Luke 6, verse 46, he said, For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And without missing a beat, he says in verse 46, the next verse why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, that's a leveling verse, my beloved. He just explained that out of, out of the heart, 
your words reveal who you really are. And then he calls us to obedience to him as Lord, Lord. Why do you lie with your mouth calling me Lord, Lord, but do not do and have no intention of doing what I tell you to do? Now, if you, up to this point in time, you say, you know what, I, I've, I've been pretty good, Pastor. I'm not terribly convicted. I don't lie that much. I try to speak the truth in love. I, I don't embellish. I don't like to flatter people. This should be a full stop for all of us. If you claim Christ as Lord, Lord, and you willingly do not do what you know you're supposed to do, or you don't take the, make the strives to know his word and then do his word, then that makes you not only a hypocrite, but what? A liar. A liar. If you call Christ Lord and he's Lord of your life, then you'll want to know and do what your Lord calls you to do. True? Of course. We don't want to be liars like Ananias and Tertullus and the Sadducees. Revelation 21.8 should be a, a, an eternal warning for us all. John says, all liars will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So lying is not just a sin. It's not just the ninth, breaking of the ninth commandment. Lying reveals the heart and the kingdom to which you belong and the king to whom you serve. Those in the courtroom before Felix made themselves known as citizens of the kingdom of flattery and lies. I pray that you've had a chance to examine your hearts. And if it's, uh, if it's not looking good, then, then hold on. Don't leave yet. I don't want you to be discouraged. The question is, how... How can we walk in such a way that we reveal with our, our words and our lives that we belong to the kingdom of honor and truth? Because that's the kingdom of Christ. How does our native language change, right? Because Jesus said, this is your native language. If you don't belong to me, that's your native language. You're going to exercise flattery. You're going to engage in lies and deception. You're going to perpetuate a lie about your life, but not if you belong to Christ. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the kingdom of honor and truth. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. So when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. So he nods to Paul. It was Paul's turn to make a defense. And so this was standard um, judicial process at that time. The accusers would come forth, and they would make their case. Then the defendant, in this case Paul, would come forth, and he'd make his case. And then witnesses would be brought before the judge, and they would testify to one or the other, and then the judge would rule. On the case. So it's Paul's turn to speak. Notice how Paul begins his defense, latter part of verse 10. He says to Governor Felix, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. How unlike Tertullus. No flattery, no attempting to win favor. Instead, what he does is quite extraordinary, and I think something we want to learn from today. He honors Felix by recognizing one, he his authority to rule has been given by God, right? He's a legitimate ruling authority, not the mob who tried to kill Paul a couple weeks prior by dragging him out of the temple. So he, he recognizes, one, he's a legitimate authority, and number two, he recognizes that Felix has been there a while. At this point in time, probably about five to six years. So he says, I recognize that you have the authority, and I recognize you've been here a while. And so, then God, so Paul rightfully thanks God. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. He doesn't flatter him because he's a child of truth, nor does he rail against him as many of Paul's contemporaries did because he was a Roman official 
ruling over Judea. Paul refused to flatter or disrespect Felix as governor, and instead he displayed this high moral character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. He rightly addresses him in his position as governor. He rightly addresses and and affirms that he's been there for five plus years. He doesn't try to manipulate him with words of flattery. He simply identifies who he is. My beloved, I would argue that today, especially in our political climate, especially for you as a Christian living in the Bay Area, we have a lot to learn from how we address and speak of those who have authority over us. And I'm speaking to myself right now. I was very convicted by this. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or two governors, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. My beloved, for the Lord's sake, for Jesus' sake, we are to rightly submit to true authorities who are over us. That means for those who are both immoral and incompetent, listen closely, Immoral, incompetent rulers, presidents, congressional members, senators, governors of states, we are to honor. We're to honor. So what does that mean? Does that mean I have to vote for them? Absolutely not. Does that mean I have to agree with their policies? Absolutely not. You should be arguing against their policies. But as long as they are a ruler, at that point in time, that's been decreed by God. And unless they're asking you to do something that's contrary to the word of God or violates your conscience, you are to submit And so Paul comes before Felix in this Christ-like submission. And it is truly otherworldly, I believe. And in so doing, he silences the ignorance of foolish people. He doesn't rail against Felix. He doesn't try to flatter Felix. He's going to speak the truth. Romans 13.1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. How many have I rubbed the wrong way? How many of you say, i got to go put my MAGA hat away, I guess, now, and I... I mean, this is hard today, and I hear in Reformed conservative circles, I hear a lot of dialogue about rulers, immoral, incompetent people, but we say things that are not God-honoring, and that's not the witness we want to the world, is it? We don't want the world hearing us speak about legitimate authority figures and think ill of us because of our speech, right? We are to live differently as citizens of the kingdom of God. Uh, So first, we see in this kingdom, for the sake of Christ, we are to... We're to honor, not flatter or disparage those who have legitimate authority over us, whoever that might be in your life. But the second thing I want you to see here, citizens of the kingdom of God speak the truth. We are to be truth speakers or truth tellers. Paul begins making his case in verse 11. And all Paul does is speak truthfully. Look at verse 11. Paul says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 17. Now, after several years, I came back to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So, Paul says the timeline, the accusations they're making, they don't quite play out in terms of what really happened here. Paul had not been back in Jerusalem for several years, anywhere from three to four, depending upon the timeline of his last missionary journey. And so, he he returns here. He's only back for 12 days, and and the, the Jews from Asia, they go into the temple, and they drag him out, and they beat him, and then the whole episode with Lysias ensues. And certainly 12 days was not long enough to establish this methodical, rabble-rousing activity that Tertullius had accused him of. He had returned to Jerusalem to bring an offering of relief for the poor. That's not a crime. He had returned to Jerusalem 
to celebrate Pentecost. He was a Jew. That's not a crime. He had returned to Jerusalem to give a report for his missionary endeavor. Not a crime. He had committed no crime, either according to Roman law or Jewish law. In other words, he was innocent. He was innocent. Look at verse 12. Paul says, And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are bringing up against me. So Paul's saying, listen, my conscience is clear. That word disputing or stirring up, that he was being dissentious. He was intentionally trying to create a riot. And he said, I, I wasn't doing that in the temple. I wasn't doing it in the synagogues. I wasn't doing it in the city. In other words, it's all made up. It's a lie because these are citizens of the kingdom of lies. And then he says, and because they're lies, there's, there's no way for them to prove it. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 18. He said, they found me, Paul said, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, verse 19, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. So he, he had a break in thought there. He said, wait a minute, where are the witnesses, right? The accuser goes first, Tertullius speaks, and then Paul, his defense, and then witnesses are supposed to be brought before the judge. And Paul says, where are they? they ought, he says to Felix, they should be here. The, the Jews from Asia who dragged me out of the temple, they should be here, but they're not. And then he, then he points to Ananias and the Sadducees. Look at verse 20. He said, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. He says, they need to be witnesses. Someone needs to testify as a witness to the crimes that I supposedly committed. And Paul's saying, someone, anyone, bring a witness to substantiate one accusation that's made against me. They could not. They could not because you can't provide a witness to testify to something that's not true, right? It was an impossible endeavor. And I think even our corrupt Felix was beginning to, to sense that this whole thing was a setup, right? That they were, they were trying to push the legal process upon Paul. Felix had to be careful, right? Paul's a Roman citizen. He knows that. And so he's got to be really careful. He wants to, oh, he wants to please the Jews. He'd love nothing more than to curry favor from Ananias and the Sadducees and gain a little political clout. But he knows Paul's a Roman citizen, so he must be very, very careful. We looked at that last week. So all the charges they had made against Paul were false, save one. Did you notice that? Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, but this I confess to you. And you see, I imagine Felix now leaned over on his seat that, oh, here it comes. He's going to confess. He is the rabble-rouser. He is the one cultivating dissension. Paul says, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Paul acknowledges, in part, one of Tertullius' statements. Tertullius said he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, just that word ringleader, someone who's there, and they're leading all these rebellious people, right? And, of course, the sect of the Nazarenes, that's Christians. That's, his, that's Tertullius' way of describing him. Paul does something here, my beloved, and, I, and I'd love for you to see this, and, and then I'll, uh, I'll close with some final thoughts. It's a, it's a, it's a work of genius, without question, the work of the Holy Spirit. He turns the entire dialogue around, essentially exonerating himself and condemning Ananias and the Sadducees right in the presence of Felix. It's a, a stroke of judicial genius. 
He, in other words, he identifies the Sadducees as being outside of true Judaism. Look with me. So Paul confesses his role as a leader of what? The way. You say, what's the way? Well, you know the way. Jesus Christ said what? John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So as a leader of the way, he was a leader of Christians, right? And then Paul says, far from being a sect of Judaism, Paul says, I am preaching, I am teaching, and I am living out true Judaism. You see, my beloved, true Judaism was protected under the Roman Empire. It was a protected religion. And so you could practice as a Jew and have Roman law protect your worship. But a truncated or perverted version, a sect, as the Sadducees were arguing Paul was part of and Christians were part of, was not protected and therefore could be punished by Roman law. And so Paul identified three indisputable aspects of true Judaism to Felix. Now, Felix had been there five, six years. He knows this. This is not news to Felix. He knows. Paul says, look at the first one, latter part of verse 14. He says, I worship the God of our fathers. Paul's saying, I I worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the same God and the same faith for 2,000 years up to this point in time. Paul says, I have been and I am following Now, the Sadducees, by perverting the message of grace that came through Abraham, remember, he was the father of what? Of the faithful. They had perverted the gospel. They were no longer following the the religion of Yahweh. In fact, they had made, the Sadducees had made idols out of money and power. And they could not say that they worshiped with their hearts and minds the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So strike number one against the Sadducees. They're already outside. And then Paul says, latter part of verse 14, I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul said, listen, I believe the entire Old Testament is the inspired, infallible, revealed word of God. A true Jew would. The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees actually had, they believed in the Torah, kind of, They believed that the Torah was inspired, kind of, but they rejected the historical narratives. They rejected prophecy. They rejected wisdom. They rejected um, uh, the the latter prophets. They didn't believe they were divinely inspired. Paul's saying, you can't be a true Jew unless you believe that the totality of God's word is, in fact, God's word. Strike number two. Lastly, Paul says, verse 15, I have a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So remember, it was the truth of the resurrection that got Paul in so much trouble, remember? Remember when he stood before the Sadducees? Look at verse 21. He actually reiterates it again. He said, this one thing I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Right, the Old Testament speaks to the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of the dead, just and unjust. Paul believed that. Paul testified to that. The Sadducees, as you know already, they rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. In fact, they, they rejected any, I don't know what kind of religion this was. They rejected any afterlife of any kind. No demons, no angels, no afterlife. They believed, they were atheists. They believed that when you died, you went into the grave and that was it. That's not a good religion. It's not the Judaism of the Bible. That's strike three. So what Paul described before Felix, worshiping the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believing the totality of the scripture and hoping in the resurrection, that was true Judaism. That's true Christianity. 
So Paul lays before them, he says, listen, they're calling me a sect. You know what that sect, you know what that word is in the Greek? You actually do know this. Here's your Greek word for the day. It means heresy. So to be a sect of Judaism was to say that you were a heretical branch of Judaism outside the protection of Rome. And so the Sadducees are accusing Paul of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a true Jew. As a Christian, Paul's saying, I'm a true Jew. Ananias, the Sadducees, and all those who reject Christ, you're a sect of Judaism. You're a heresy of the one true living God. And therefore, what? You're outside of Roman protection. And Paul, in that moment in the courtroom, turned the tables around, and the accused becomes the accuser. And now they stood before Felix, completely exposed that they weren't even real Jews, not according to what a real Jew is. My beloved, this is, this is so much more than an incredible courtroom drama played out before Felix 2,000 years ago. This mini-narrative between the citizens of God and the citizens of this world very much will resemble your day in court before the Lord. On the final day of judgment, when the dead are raised, the dead are raised, the just and the unjust, and we're all brought before the throne of God. On that day, if you are in Christ, a very similar scene will play out for you. There'll be an accuser there. His name is the devil, and he will accuse you of not being worthy to enter into the kingdom of God. He will say that you are not worthy to be a son or daughter of God. He will say that you have not lived a moral life. He will say you've lived more like a citizen of this world than a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he will point out all your sins, many of which you know and some of which you don't even know. He will point them out to the living God. He will say you're not holy enough. He will say you're not faithful enough. He will say you're not loving enough. And you know what? It's all true. It's all true. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to come before God. Satan's going to accuse me of these things, and they're all true. They're all true. True. But you will still stand before the living God and not perish. You will still stand, not because you are holy or faithful or loving enough on your own, but because Christ was and Christ is. And by being united with Christ, so are you. Hmm? You are holy enough. You are faithful enough. And you are loving enough in Christ, and therefore you are a part of God's kingdom. Not you, but Christ. Like the Apostle Paul before Felix, you will not be found, ultimately you will not be found guilty. Not because you are not guilty. The charges are true. Your sins are real. You deserve what? You deserve eternal death. That's what we deserve. But you will be exonerated freed from all punishment, declared righteous before God because of the trial that Christ went through on your behalf, because of what your Savior did. The truly innocent man, the only innocent man in all of human history, when he stood before then Roman governor Pontius Pilate, like Paul, he was falsely accused of all kinds of crimes, was he not? He was falsely accused, and yet it pleased God for his son to be declared guilty and sentenced to death by Roman crucifixion. Completely innocent of all charges, save one, that he was the Son of God. That's what he declared. They accused him of blasphemy, and he was right. He is. It pleased God to have his Son experience the greatest evil in order to allow those of us who deserve such evil to be set free. 
that true accusations against us, all deserving of hell, could be paid for in full by him. Christ was falsely accused and crucified so that those of us justly accused and guilty could escape death, could be forgiven and brought in. So that you, listen, sinner, (laughs) oh, I know we hear this week after week, and sometimes the gospel falls short on our ears. My beloved, we, we are guilty before God, and if not for Christ, we perish. We perish. Christ, who was innocent, was declared guilty to receive our just punishment so that those of us deserving of eternal death could have eternal life instead. Brought out of what? Brought out of the kingdom of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, no longer required to serve your native language and your native tongue, the ruler of this world, and brought into the kingdom of the Son, into the kingdom of light and joy, into all the eternal promises that God has for us in Christ. This means, saints, if you've been united with Christ through faith, then you can live right now as the kingdom of God's citizen that you are. Right? These, these two scenarios we saw played out, Ananias and the Sadducees and Tertullus, representing the kingdom of this world, and then Paul representing the kingdom of God. You can live like Paul. Paul should not be this superhero that's set up above that you said, I can never attain to that life. Not true. The same gospel, the same power of the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It means that you can honor those in positions of authority. You don't have to flatter them. You also don't have to disrespect them. You can honor them, as Paul did Felix. It means that you can speak your new language, the spiritual language of the Holy Spirit. Your tongue does not have to be a wildfire. It doesn't have to set your course and the course of life of others on fire. Your tongue can be submitted to Christ, and you can speak truth lovingly, patiently, and humbly. It means that in the Spirit, you can, listen, you can say, Lord, Lord, and not be a hypocrite. You can say, Lord, Lord, and not be a liar, because you can know Him, and you can know His Word And by the power of the Spirit, you can do what he called you to do. Living, instead of being a child of this world, a child of God, born again, Holy Spirit indwelt, striving daily to know and live out God's word. How you live and how you speak is your witness. It's your witness. It's your testimony to yourself, to others, and to this world of the kingdom to which you belong. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. It's your testimony now, and that's the testimony that will be used before you on the day of judgment. Do you know that? Your testimony now will be brought into that last day and into that courtroom, not standing before a Roman governor like Felix or Festus or Pontius Pilate, but the king of kings and lord of lords before the eternal judge. Your witness now will be brought before the judge. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you, on that day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's a leveling verse, my beloved. There's no tiptoeing around that. Your testimony now will be your testimony then. The wrong response to this message is going out and trying to change your native language trying to speak another language on your own. Not the right response. He said, oh, I do. I I flatter people a lot. I lie a lot. 
I'm deceptive a lot. You can't change yourself. If that is your native language and you haven't been born again, if you say, that, that's me, identify with Ananias. I'm more like Tertullius than I am Paul, my beloved, then you want to repent and turn to Christ today. That means you need to be saved. You need a new heart in order to get a new language. And so if that's you today, then repent of your sins. Call upon Christ to forgive you of your sins. Make Christ your Lord. And you know what? Your language will change because your heart will change. Your witness will change. And if you know Christ, but your witness of him in this world is not what it should be, and that should be all of us. If you know Christ, you know what? I'm just not a great witness. Well, then... I will call you to draw near to the Lord because he promises to draw near to you. If your witness is not what it ought to be, draw near to God, he will draw near to you and you will be able to, in the power of the Spirit, have words and a way of life that testifies to his goodness and glory. Isn't that what we want? We want our lives to be a living testimony. We want to be witnesses every moment of every day until Christ comes to the goodness and grace and majesty of our God. He is worthy of it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see this courtroom trial take place between Paul and his accusers so long ago, I pray you would cause us to reflect upon that day when we will stand before you on the great day of judgment. I ask, Lord, that you would cause each and every one of us to reflect deeply upon the words that come from our mouths and the lives that we live. We do not want that day to be a shock for us, Father. We want to have great joy and great confidence that we will see you. And when we see Christ face to face, we will not be cast out, but we will be welcomed in. I pray, Lord, for all those who are here right now who have identified with Tertullus or Ananias or the Sadducees and realize that their faith is not a true faith. It's not a true Christian faith. Maybe they don't worship you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe they do not believe that the entire Bible is inspired by you. Maybe they do not have a hope in the resurrection. Lord, change that for them today. Cause them this morning to be saved. I pray that you would come upon them and cause them to believe. And for all my brothers and sisters here who are thinking deeply about their words and their lives and they are concerned, I pray that they would draw near to Christ. Draw them to him this morning, Father, and that by that proximity and that intimacy, he might breathe into them through his spirit words and ways that bring him honor and glory. Lord, cause us to speak and cause us to live and cause us to relate as the children, as the citizens of your kingdom that we are, as sons and daughters, I pray. We want to be glorious testimonies to your son. He is worthy of it. I ask these things in Christ's name, amen.